Welcome to the Here Be Dragons podcast. My name is Brett Landry, and today I'm sitting down with Jake Lefebvre, who's the lead pastor of Christ City East Vancouver, and with Dr. Miriam Kovalishin, who is the assistant professor of New Testament at Regent College. She is a wonderful scholar of the Bible and Bible teacher, and happens to be a great human being as well. Miriam, thank you for coming and sitting down with us today. Well, thank you for having me here with you guys. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's wonderful to be able to sit down and talk about God's Word together and uh, in the middle of this season, I mean, we're recording this on March uh, 30th, and so looking at um, the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, and uh, not that everything is about that, but that is the season we're living in right now. Uh, Miriam has focused her studies on the Epistle of James, and so you're a New Testament professor in general, but with a focus on the Epistle of James, that's where you did your PhD work. Right. And, uh, I know I've certainly sat under your teaching and uh, have benefited greatly from your scholarship. Mark some of your papers, Brett. She's marks it. That's right. That's right. That's right. I've been I've been her student uh, on a couple of occasions, and very thankful to be able to um, sit under your ministry and for all the hard work that you've done in digging things out of, particularly the Book of James and the rest of the New Testament, whereby uh, we might grow as pastors and leaders in the church. And so thankful for you. Um, we wanted to have a bit of a conversation today about James and what James might say to us in this particular season. Uh, Miriam, if there was one verse of scripture out of the book of James, out of the epistle of James right now, what would it be that you would highlight for us? Uh, James 4, 8. Wash your hands, you sinners. Wash your hands. <laughs> <laughs> this is the season This is where James comes to the forefront and he has the command that everyone needs to pay attention to these days. Wash thy hands, you sinners. <laughs> Wash your hands, you sinners. A lot of the, you know, CDC and people didn't realize they're quoting scripture as they're commanding right, people all the time. Right. But there That's you right. go. That's right. Well, we can uh, we can at least agree on that. Uh, Marion, before we dive into the book of James, mm-hmm. I mean, be- you're also a person who's going through this as well. How are you yeah. doing? How how's your family? How, how's how, life? Uh, how's life? Um, it's it's. Similar and yet different. We're not. We're we're a family of introverts. So in some ways, our life is just kind of plodding along. We're quite happy. The hardware stores are still open as a necessary business, apparently. So my husband is quite happy. Um, he's, he's continuing the, the the kitchen renovation. He's continuing the kitchen renovation, plodding along, drilling, sawing. Our son is learning how to drill and saw. Um, so in one sense, life is normal. In another sense, it's quite odd. Um, it's been fun to kind of get to know the neighbors on either side of our house a little bit more as we talk over the fence more because you don't talk to other people, so you chat in the backyard a little more than we used to. Um, yeah, I, I was going to be on mat leave this semester regardless, so in a sense I'm grateful because I'm not having to scramble to learn how to teach online very, very quickly. Um, so again, since I was on leave, my life isn't all that different because I'm still just hanging out with a wee little one. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's surreal you, you learn you I mean yes when I look at the bigger world then you just have the sense of okay just hold your breath and here we are and we'll see how this all goes and we're still in the middle of it with everyone else. Um but then in terms of my daily life in some ways that's we just kind of quietly introvert along. Happily. Yeah. Yeah, well I I can uh, I can relate to the introvert uh part of that. I've I've been enjoying the moments I get by myself. Yeah. Not a lot of those moments. In, no, not in, with the little ones at household. home. The, the, the little ones at home definitely make not it. Not a ton. Not quiet. Well, that's enough personal talk. <laughs> the, Done with personal. <laughs> yeah, the book of James. Yeah. Miriam, um, so much obviously in uh, the book of James, more than we can cover in the time mm-hmm. that we have together mm-hmm. uh, this afternoon. Um, if you were to sort of um, paint the entryway for us, like h- how would you um, have us look at the book of James, just as a matter of gate, wrapping our heads around it um, in, in this season in particular? Um, so if I'm just kind of framing for students the book of James, the, um, the key theme, I think, is that of single-mindedness versus double-mindedness and really getting people to, to become like our Father. So we're supposed to be wholeheartedly devoted to God, single-minded in that, and not torn by the world, by our desires, by our... Uh, world systems, the economy, all these different things that can pull our allegiance in different ways. So the the single-minded focus on God obviously does speak to this time. It speaks to all of life all the time. Um, But in this time, what are we focusing on when the news is coming at us all the time, when, you know, there's so many different things to to fret about? Are we actually trusting God wholeheartedly or are we letting the cares of 
that in a sense you could look at it as a play on the story of Peter walking on the water. Are we looking at all the waves or are we actually staying focused on God in this moment? Um, are we single-mindedly focused? And so that, that tension between being single-mindedly focused like our God and then acting like our God come, is where all the commands in James come out is, are we acting like God or are we torn all over the place? That, that's interesting too, even coming out of our series on Sermon on the Mount, uh, because mm-hmm. obviously there's a huge emphasis, and Brett, you, you've spoken yeah. about this too, as you've taught through it, on, on um, single-mindedness or, or single, like being a, a whole, a whole yes. disciple and not being divided and fractured in your desires. Mm-hmm. Is, is James kind of picking up on the same sort of idea yeah. that Jesus I, is talking about? People would actually have said that James is a sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. And so there's very close ties to the Sermon on the Mount. I, I think it's more broadly on all of Jesus' teaching, but very much centered on, around the Sermon on the Mount. So the themes that you see in the Sermon on the Mount, you see again in James, and they just converse very nicely together, as it were. Fantastic. It's like a grounded picture of what it means to be a, a, a devoted follower of Jesus. Yeah. Yep. And it, it has this emphasis on action, but mm-hmm. all that we ever are doing is living out what we believe. Right. right? And so right. that's that single-mindedness where if we're double-minded, we get torn apart, mm-hmm. a divided mind. You know, we're talking mm-hmm. about um, living in the midst of anxiety in our generation yeah. right now with people who we were anxious before this started. <laughs> and then all of this started, and now we don't know what's up or what's down. We don't know right. what's ahead or, or you know, what we thought was laid out in front of us is a plan that's sort of gone. And mm-hmm. I know that the, the book of James here, the letter of James definitely speaks to that where, you know, we move, I, I would say probably in, in some areas of chapter four, right. highlight some of that double-mindedness. But even I'm thinking about the, the latter part of uh, uh, fourth chapter mm-hmm. Here, mm-hmm. where it, it's really, what are we promised in this? Right? right. Right. I think, yeah, chapter four, 13 to 17 is really coming into the, coming into its own as it were right now. Um, that's been a chunk of James that often doesn't get focused on cause it's not particularly cheerful. Um, you know, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. But actually in a sense, that's the reality all the time. But right now we actually are aware of it. In a culture, in a world where we want to control, we want to make sure if I do all these things, then my life will go this way. And we often kind of can get lured, um, blinded in a sense by the the control we can have. Because there's a lot, especially here in the West, there's a lot of things we can control. Um, Life is fairly plottable. You know, we do get blindsided by different things at different times, but often we have that sense of control. And right now we don't. And I think that's flustering a lot of people, but it gives us a chance to re- reorient and realize that actually this is life. Like this is what it is every day. We just have an illusion that we have more control than that. Right. Um, and so in a sense to start to live into the awareness that we live every day, if the Lord wills. And it's not a blase, ah, if God wills, and you just say it as a kind of, I don't know. Well, there's people who end all Token. their every yeah. email like that. Yeah. You know, Lord willing. You know. <laughs> and it can be just a cliche that right. you're not actually paying attention right. to. I'll see you on Sunday, Lord willing. Right. right. Assumedly. Yeah. But there's like there there we are used maybe to the uh if that's two sides of a, a spectrum. Mm-hmm. We're typically in the West anyways, and yeah. in Vancouver particularly, yeah. in this way where we're we're not really depending as much as we maybe think we're depending, but we're more in control and planning mm-hmm. and we're assuming mm-hmm. we're making a lot of assumptions uh, about what the future may look like for us. Right. And I think of, um, of something that um, sociologist I was reading highlighted this, but talked about the Coleman gap. And the gap was basically, if you plotted it on a graph, which if I have to look at another uh, escalating <laughs> graph, I'm going to throw up maybe, but, but, but if you can imagine there. the graph, you know, and there's two lines on it on the top line is expectation and the bottom line is reality. And where there's a gap between the expectation and the reality, they called it this, this author Coleman um, defined that as, as the place of, this is why people who are doing really, really well and are successful in life can still be miserable and disappointed with what they've done mm. and who they've become mm. because their expectation was higher right. than the reality. And what's happened right. is the expectations of our life have had a hard reset in the last <laughs> couple of weeks uh, in Vancouver, the yeah. last couple of months globally. Mm-hmm. And a hard reset is, you know, maybe some of those dreams that we were chasing, we're finding out they might not have actually been the core of the call we have as followers mm-hmm. of Jesus. They may have been things that we added on. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I just, I want to read this passage because we're looking at it and I know not everyone's going to have their Bible in front of them. It says in James chapter four, verse 13, come now you who say, 
today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Verse 15 says, Instead you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Mm-hmm. That is as strong of a reset as I can think of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we're, we're living in it. We are definitely, yeah, having that reset. Miriam, can you talk about the connection between verse 17 and 13 to 16? Because it seems like verse 17 is a bit of a, just an unrelated it's, addition. Right. What, what's actually happening there? Um. Yeah, it often is seen as kind of an unrelated addition, but I think it actually is much more closely tied. And here I have to thank a thesis student of mine who wrote on this and argued for a link between this this verse and Proverbs 3, um, where there's a Proverbs 3, 27 to 28 talks about don't refrain from doing good to the poor, which sounds fairly like James. Um, and do not say tomorrow I will give to them because you don't know what your life will be tomorrow. And so it's very much the sense that, uh, if you will, again, tying this passage to Jesus' teaching, this could be an echo of the rich fool. I'll hoard up my stuff and I'll have it all in my you know, silos. And actually what you're supposed to do is give to the poor. If you have extra, the good that you're to do is use your business for the good of other people. Right. Use your good, you know, use your business to make that money. Yes, plan. Like in this passage, yes, you do plan, but you plan in the Lord's will and you plan for it to be good for the others. And if you know there's good you can do with your business and then, or whatever you do. Your income or... Your income, your way of, whatever it is that you do. If there's ways that you can do good with it and you don't, then that's actually what we might call sins of omission. That is sin because you are selfishly hoarding what you should be freely giving. The, the parable of the, the rich fool coming out of Luke 12, mm-hmm. I know it's in other gospels as well, but just this idea that the, the rich fool has massive harvests and, and has had a, a wonderful windfall, so to speak, and says, what am I going to do with all this harvest? And then says, I'm going to build up silos so I can mm-hmm. store it away. And mm-hmm. then says, you know, I say to my soul, you know, be merry kind of thing. Every, you're, you're well taken care of. You're well right. provided for now. And then, and then the Lord says in the parable, you fool. Yep. You fool. You Your life will be demanded from you. And then who is going to get all of this that you've accumulated? Right. And, you know, if you're not, and it talks about being generous to God, which mm-hmm. I always find is a really interesting tie-in. That when we talk about people who are without or who are struggling or who just don't have basic needs being able to, you know, they're not able to meet them. It's, it's like other places where the scriptures say that, you know, he, she who gives to the Lord lends, or who, who gives lends to the to poor, poor lends to the Lord. Yeah. Right. And yep. it's this idea that, yeah, we're being rich toward God when we're taking care yeah. of people in our lives. And again, we show that single-mindedness that we are focused on God, not focused on can I hoard? And which is an interesting thing when like one of the phenomena everyone noticed in this whole pandemic is the hoarding. Everyone's immediately started hoarding for themselves instead of how are we caring for others? It's, I've got to take care of me, right. <laughs> which should raise some questions. We've talked about in our, in our community group, um, one of the women in our community group uh, that they live right down the street from us. And uh, we've had a conversation about how we need to develop in our neighborhood, uh, which I think is all of the grocery stores in our neighborhood. I haven't seen toilet paper in them for like a month. It's just, I don't know where it goes, but it's all gone. And we talked about how we need to develop a judgment-free drop zone for people who have hoarded toilet paper so that people in our neighborhood who don't have any can actually just go there and there can be some sort of exchange. But we'll call it a judgment-free zone where you can just show up in the cloak of night and drop off your extra, you know, bundles of toilet paper. And that way, Mm -hmm. you know, you can... (laughs) We're not sure how we're going to roll that out yet, right. but it's a good yeah. idea. But it's a good idea. <laughs> I, I would love both you guys to speak to the uh, the question because I think there's there's a tension here that you, we've addressed in that um, don't hoard, but you said, Miriam, like, but be wise, and the, and, mm-hmm. the, and there's a wisdom component to what James is saying mm-hmm. here. And so, mm-hmm. how do we live with that tension of so have enough food in your house and and feed your kids and feed your family at the same time? Don't hoard and give generously. Um, mm-hmm. Like like, how would James help navigate that for us? I mean, where, where, where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Uh, for that particular question, I'd probably go back to James 1, uh, especially the whole opening section. Um, first, you have considerate pure joy in verse 2 when you face trials of many sorts, um, which this is. 
this is of many sorts of trials for different people. It's, you know, it's a whole variety of different types of issues going on with this. Um, but the only reason we do have that sense of joy, and this is not just be happy, put a smile on your face, but actually the deep joy because we trust God, is because we know he's actually doing something, which is that he's forming his character in us so that we know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and endurance we have to let finish its perfect work so that we might become mature and complete or perfect and complete, i.e. we might start to show God's character. Lacking in nothing is the next line, followed immediately by, if you lack wisdom, which guess what all of us do right now? (laughs) We need to ask God. And I think that's, again, we need to get our focus back on God. What would you have us do? Is this a time when I actually need to open my house to somebody who doesn't have a place to stay, who can't afford rent, who can't afford food? Do we... Do I need to open my house to this person, Hannah? What does that look like? What does that look like to be wise in that Mm. kind of opening? Or do I deliver things because in our situation, that's not a good one, but I can still give out of what I have and we can eat a whole lot more rice and lentils? Um, You know, do I need to eat to the level of eating that I usually suppose that I should? (laughs) But are we looking to God for wisdom and letting, and then are we responding, which is what chapter two would get at? Are we responding to the things that God shows us? Or are we closing our eyes and plugging our ears and not really wanting that wisdom because it might actually ask us to sacrifice? So, yeah. That's a lot of fun. Yeah, I know. James is really a cheerful book. I... (laughs) It's a very practical book, but it's not always cheerful. Can I can I press on that just a little yeah. bit further, Maren? Because I think I think I read that passage and I think of going uh, and praying, and when I say, or when James says, you know, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. God's gonna zap me, right, with like the right idea, like like do this. Is that what James is talking about? What, what, what does he mean? Wisdom tends to be that learned, experiential, doing the right thing at the right time. Wisdom is what gives you the eyes to be able to see what the right thing at that moment is. And so it's much more of a, as I walk into a situation, Lord, give me the eyes to see this is how I respond at this time. This is how, and that's why the Proverbs actually are so brilliant for this kind of time, because you have two Proverbs right next to it. Answer a fool according to his fault. Don't answer a fool according to his fault. Now, if wisdom isn't going to be the same thing, you need to know in this situation, I do this. In this situation, I do that. And we can't just expect a lightning bolt answer. We can't expect, I want the skywriter, but unfortunately, we don't often get a skywriter telling us, oh, Miriam, right. do this today. Right. Brett, I, I love to throw this to you because uh, this brings uh, it to a question we received via email uh, about, um, we had talked about the plagues and how the church had historically responded to the plagues by going into the midst of the plagues right. and mm-hmm. serving mm-hmm. Uh, the poor in like very dangerous uh, situations. And, and the, the email was a fantastic email and asked a really good question of like, well, what if I'm with someone who's immunocompromised yep. and I go mm-hmm. and I serve with these peop- uh, people mm-hmm. and then I come back and then I'm, I'm passing the virus on to this immunocompromised person uh, that doesn't seem very loving to me. Right. And so it seems like it might be a question of, of wisdom. Yeah. I think it's a very important question and I'm so thankful that, that the, the woman sent that in because uh, she's right. There, we need to nuance that. And so we talked about in a previous episode, the plague of Cyprian mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. how it was the Christians who continued to uh, steadfastly serve those and love those who were dying Right. It looked like they were dying, right. and how a, a massive group of them, it seems, according to the the writing of Cyprian and others, and, and Dionysius and, and others who wrote in that era, that the Christians were preserving the basic, they were preserving life by basic nursing care, right. as opposed to complete abandonment. Right. And so it's quite obvious that what happened at that era of history is not what's happening at this era of history, at least yet. Right. And and we're not living in a world where there's dead or dying bodies sort of being piled on the road while people flee for the hills right. in this season, where we actually know a little bit better scientifically that one of the best ways we can love and serve people is by staying home right. and not doing that, especially right. if we're, uh, you know, obviously the, all the all the bulletins that have been out, if you've just traveled, if you've got this, if you've got a symptom, you know, you need to self-quarantine and all of those mm-hmm. things. The, one of the best ways to love people is with the wisdom to know what to do and then when to do it. And so mm-hmm. I would say the, the person to the person who asked the question, uh, you know, it's not the same. We have to take the principle that we right. learned over the course of history and over the, the, and we talked in that, in that episode about why the Christians were living that way. It was this right. eschatological view of things. So they had in view the hope of glory. They had in view their promised eternal future. That they knew that the worst thing that could happen to them was that they would die, but that they could, while they were alive, still show the love of God to others. Right. So they had that as like their mental framework. 
And I think we have to take that mental framework and then apply it to our situations now. And so we just went through, you know, here we are in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, we just had Sunday talking about like, can you serve God or money? Like, do you, mm-hmm. you can't, mm-hmm. so you can't do both. Are you going to serve God or money? And the reality that we need to take our eternal perspective and then we need to apply that to our situation here and now and allow the mercy that is given to us in the gospel, the mercy that we've received from our Father, then to be extended in the life of the church to others who need mercy. And so, Mm -hmm. again, the book of James is really, I think, an unpacking of the Sermon on the Mount, it Mm -hmm. seems, as Mm -hmm. as you've already highlighted, where you talk about, you know, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And you have this going on. So yeah, uh, the response of the church in this season is going to be different than the response of the church in other seasons with other plagues, other diseases, even as as different, uh, as recent as something like SARS or MERS or these different outbreaks. It's a different response because we know that wisdom would dictate we handle things differently. Right. Where now we can we can maybe deliver groceries, but we don't want to have any contact. Right. Well, and that, that speaks to what what can we do? So we know in this time that wisdom means like not being so close to people, hugging people, getting a huge group together and spreading this. That's just actually cruel. Um, but how then? What you know? What can we do? There are people who are ministering, say in Vancouver and the downtown east side, who are continuing to do that in different ways. How can we support them? How can we support our immunocompromised people in the church and neighbors who are not in the church? How can we? Um, you know, so trying to see what, in a, in a sense, creative eyes to help others in this time instead of just, I mean, the temptation in this kind of time is to become inward looking, narcissistic almost of, I've got to protect me, which we do. And part of, you know, like, it, we don't, I don't want to advocate being stupid. That's not the problem. But the problem can become when we just only look in instead of saying, okay, wisdom dictates I not spread this to everybody. Yes, right. But how can I help those, you know, I have friends whose spouses are working in hospitals who aren't coming home again until this is over. Yes. And so how can we support those friends who are now suddenly single parenting? <laughs> how can we, you know, like, yeah. what are the ways of which, you know, we can be creative, as it were, to do the sort of care, in a sense, that they did in those prior plagues, but now we understand germs differently. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> not doing that. And I think part of it comes down to the fact that, that it's not, at that place yet. And mm-hmm. God willing, it won't be at that place mm-hmm. in Vancouver ever. But I would say stories that have come out of it, uh, out of Italy mm-hmm. of priests who've, who've sat and held the hand of the sick and dying and themselves gotten sick right? or right. who were already sick and they were in the hospital. So it's not like it's going to get any worse for them. They're, they're already there mm-hmm. and they're there ministering and caring to, for people in that environment. Those are the uh, the bright shining stars of, mm-hmm. of the stories that are going around. And I think we have to consider what it would look like if that happens in Vancouver mm-hmm. and how we're going to care for people. And there are lots of people who in this environment right now are, are rightly afraid, but mm-hmm. I think that we can't allow our fear to limit our response. And so whether that's fear of scarcity, like we're afraid of being without, well, we maybe need to turn our eyes to those who are already without and right. take our chances, so to speak, on depending on God's goodness and kindness to us and that we'll be able to figure this out as we go. So you said more lentils and, and rice as opposed to rich cuts of meat in this right. season or whatever right. that might look like. But you take that wisdom, and this is the thing. We want to take those good stories from Scripture. We want to take those good stories from Christian history. We want to take the wisdom that we're being taught in Scripture and apply it to our own unique situations and context. And so we do ministry in Vancouver different than my friends uh, do ministry in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. Mm-hmm. We do ministry different in Vancouver than our friends who are doing um, ministry in rural China. And I've been able to meet and talk with those people as we've been able to teach in different settings. And we all have people that we know around the world who are doing ministry differently than they are here because the context demands it. And I would say this uh, global pandemic is just a different kind of context. And so it changes. Uh, it doesn't change what we want to do and how we want to love. It just changes how we might employ that. Right. And we need to have the wisdom to know what the context dictates and then we respond in like kind. I think this leads us to another huge question when it comes to the book of James. Uh, we start talking about doing things, yes. a, which I know you love, <laughs> Miriam, but it's a question, of course, of faith and works right? and the right, role right, that works uh, plays related to faith. There's right. there's the famous, you know, is Paul opposed to James, whereas Paul talks yeah. about, you know, justified by faith alone. Right, and here's right, James. Right. No, no, no. You need works as well. Right. Help us understand maybe just what's happening here and then help us walk through maybe our response uh, in this okay. day. Yeah, uh, that is one of the big, uh, that, yeah, historically, 
one of the big problems with the book of James is being put up, put up against Paul. And I actually don't think they are up against each other. I think you read Paul well and suddenly you realize he's deeply concerned about how the communities live, how they live out this faith that they've been given. He was concerned though when he was writing that sort of thing of how do you enter the kingdom? And you don't enter by works of circumcision or food laws or staying away from sinners, those Gentiles over there. You don't, you don't gain righteousness before God by doing all sorts of things. You gain righteousness by the grace of God only, by his gift to us. And so it's just by faith. Whereas James, I would say, is actually kind of, if you will, writing to the flip side of that coin. Okay, now we're in. That's great. But the grace of God means you will become different. <laughs> like you cannot stay the same because you have encountered God's grace now. And so he's deeply concerned by seeing communities, Christian, who are just continuing to live like the world. And he's saying, that's not possible, actually. I think he would, he would be mystified by, by the even conceptual possibility that you can continue to live your life just like it was with no changes and claim to be a Christian. And so he's concerned that grace is effective, as it were in transforming us. Um, so one of the big things I try and emphasize though is that all through chapter one, it's the grace of God that's prioritized. So um, one eighteen is probably the most crucial verse for this. Uh, he chose to give us yeah. birth. Yeah. So all of it starts with God's act. He chose to give us birth by the word of truth that we might become a kind of first fruits of all of creation. So. All of what this book is about is the fact that already God has chosen us. Already God has given birth to us into a new creation. We are now supposed to live as that new creation, living out of the reality of what we already have had done for us. Um, and so he's saying, you need to now live as that first fruits. You can't live according to the old kingdom. That would mean, mean being double-minded, which you, know, you still want that old, old way of life. I want to add, I want to ask this question, and either of you or both of you chime in on this. I, the conversation at some point, and I don't feel like we've turned there quite yet in the church. Mm -hmm. There's little pockets of it, maybe that pop up here and there with questions. The Book of James talks about suffering quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Count it all joy, you know, verse two, trials of various kinds, mm -hmm. testing of your faith, mm -hmm. it's a steadfastness. Later on, we've got down in verse 12 of chapter 1, blessed is the person, man or woman, who remains steadfast under trial. Mm -hmm. For when he's te uh, stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him, okay? Uh, chapter, f I mean, chapter, you could go through all, through the whole mm -hmm. book doing this, but mm -hmm. chapter 5, we're going to be patient, therefore, for the coming of the Lord. And it talks about this patience and enduring in suffering. Mm -hmm. All of these things. Mm -hmm. I want to ask... Uh, question that I think we're going to have to answer as the Church of Jesus Christ in the first world that we live in, who are not acquainted with regular ongoing trials and suffering in this way. How do you answer the person who says, did God send this? Did God ordain this? Is God author of a virus that has transformed our generation? early days here, but it's transforming the psyche mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of, of all people who are alive at this point in history. It's, it's a global reality. It, it, it is no respecter of persons. Mm -hmm. How do we answer that to the person who's sitting there looking and saying, if God is good and if God is love, why would he allow this? Is yeah. he the one who sent this? Or, or how, do we, how do we reckon with that? Mm. Really? That's not a softball. <laughs> yeah, no, Miriam, supposed to be after, softball. After you. <laughs> after. No, um, I mean, I can tell you what I would think scripturally, um, and I know different people will yeah. come to different conclusions on this, but I would see something like this virus as the cost of the fallen world. And that God, in his infinite wisdom, allows the world to kind of continue on, allows us to continue on, being human with our sinfulness, with our all the different things. And then, you know, earthquakes, I don't think God makes them. I think that's part of how the world is, you know, like in the, the planet is. And, and then these things are allowed maybe, but not sent. And I think it's not very wise of Christians to try and draw one-to-one -one correlations of yeah. God is doing this, yeah. and yes. this is why. Yeah. Definitive statements. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe if someone, it, I, I, we haven't had a, 
that I know of a proper prophet speaking in the name of the Lord. Maybe if there were one, then they would have that right to say that. And I wouldn't envy them. Someone like Ezekiel got called to be a prophet and then went and mourned for 30 days first. Yeah, um, It's not a fun job. So the don't. Prophetic <laughs> life seems like a tough one. It's brutal. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I would say we need to be, I, I think what the scriptural answer tends to be is mercy in the situation, not dictating answers and explaining everything away. It's, it's how do we care now that this is where we are in this fallen world? Yeah. Yeah. Tom Wright um, has an article in Time Magazine, um, and it's a bit of a cheeky title where he asks the question of what do Christians have to say in the midst of this pandemic? Mm-hmm. And he says nothing. And of course, the answer is not nothing. But what he's emphasizing is that uh, what you're just saying is that not giving pat answers like, well, God's doing this because of this sin mm-hmm. or, or mm-hmm. this thing. And, and here's the clear one-to-one sort of correlation. And I thought yeah. it was uh, a wise word. The other thing I would I would add uh, to what you said, uh, Miriam, was that as I've been talking with people, um, is to remind them that, like, that God doesn't waste any of these things. Right. That, right, that, right, that right. none of this, I mean, like we've been talking about, like we've been seeing in James, this, something's being produced in us. Mm-hmm. Something is meant to be changed in us uh, mm-hmm. because of this. And I mean, I know, for, like speaking for me personally, you know, as I sit here with like an anxious ball in, in, in my chest, like what is being changed in me? Like how am I being formed more into the image of Christ mm-hmm. uh, in this season? And so that, that'd be just something I would add as well to, to yeah. that too. I think the one of the answers that I've given so far with people, and it's like this whenever something horrible happens, if there's a car accident or a death in a family or yeah, a, a tsunami that wipes out, uh, you know, thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people. Or if it's something like this where there's a pandemic. Yeah, I, I think these kind of things, death enters in through sin mm-hmm. and it's a consequence of sin in this way. And I think that, yeah, we live in a fallen world and it's very easy to try and play, um, you know, binary games mm-hmm. of God is either this or that. And, yeah. and it's, it's the, the effect of the fall. I mean, Romans chapter eight talks about the, the earth groans under the weight yeah. of sin. I, yeah, earthquakes that lead to tsunamis, that lead to devastation, that lead to death, that lead to suffering, that lead to the church rising up in the midst of that and offering hope and offering peace. So one of the things I say, it's a, a line that my wife said when we were in Bible college, like a long time ago, she said, God, everything, she said, everything that ever happens to us is either purposed or allowed by God to make us more like him. Mm-hmm. And purposed or allowed is a very key feature in right. that sentence. He's going to use every situation. He definitely purposes some things that are difficult mm-hmm. in our lives to lead us to depend more on him. There's no mm-hmm. doubt. But there are things also that are allowed. There yeah. are horrific things that that somehow, and I don't understand how this works, and I feel very much like it's above my pay grade, <laughs> on, on the pay grade of the triune God himself who can answer this question. But I don't know why everything happens. But what I do know is the way we respond to it, how we lean into letters like James. Yeah. And we can lean into the teaching of Jesus on this, and it will refine us that we might, again, respond differently the next time it goes around. And I would just follow up if you want to tie those two points back to James very nicely is back to James 1. There, God doesn't waste this. He is creating something in us in this time. He is making us more like his character. Um, so we we don't have to waste this opportunity. But I think we have a choice to engage that or not. And that's the call James is asking us. Are we going to let God produce endurance and let endurance have its perfect work? Or are we going to sit and just be anxious and not let him actually lead us to himself. And then the second point that I would bring in is uh, James 4, 10, 11 to 12. Um, the desire to play God is what you're talking about. Like, is this on the, play, the, the pay grade of God himself? And he says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. And then this is the crucial bit. So I, I would say all through James, he's trying to get us to develop the character of God except that God is judge. And so in 4.12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? We don't have the right to say why God is doing what God is doing per se. That is God's right only. And he's the only one that has the right to, to judge who's doing what appropriately. We are called, I mean, the whole book of James is calling a community to account. So yes, we are called to call each other to account, but we don't actually get to say who is saved and who is damned. We don't actually get to say why God is doing what God is doing. We don't, that, that's above our pay grade. Yeah. We are called to respond in love and mercy. 
yeah, yeah. That would be my thoughts on there. Yeah, I well, I, I'm so encouraged by I mean by both of those points, Miriam. I, I mean particularly challenged by that that point you put where where we can choose: are we going to participate in this, mm-hmm. or are mm-hmm. we going to like just sort of just remain in that place of anxiety or or fear? Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think that that keyword there of participation is is really key uh, in that mm-hmm. like the Lord calls us to participate in our sanctification mm-hmm. and our being made um, yeah. Yeah, like him. I, I do want to keep on going because uh, we talked with George uh, last week through the book of Hebrews and he talked about the eschatological or the return of Jesus mm-hmm. feature of that book. Um, James also has a bit of a, a mm-hmm. return of Jesus, mm-hmm. not a bit, uh, a, a lot <laughs> of a, has the, a, a return yeah. of Jesus uh, in it. Yes. Um, particularly in a verse that stands out for me is uh, James 5 verse 7 where James says, be patient, therefore, brothers brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be patient until the coming of the Lord? Such a good question. Thank you, Jake. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, patience in James is one of those words, well, patience in general, endurance, those are words that are wildly under misunderstood in the West, I think. Um, we tend to think of endurance or patience as very passive virtues. Like, I just have to be I mean, I'm trying to teach my three-year-old to be patient. And, you know, it's hilarious when he's laying on the floor screaming and flailing around while yelling, I'm being patient, I'm being patient. Um, You're the only one who's experienced that as a parent. My kids are perfectly behaved, so I I, I can't relate. Yeah. Okay, okay, I'll I'll work some more with him. Yeah, yeah. no judgment here, but my kids never did that. Yeah, Yeah. so (laughs) patience is something we very much need to learn. And a lot of times what we teach is this kind of passive just wait, 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 but not doing anything in that time. Um, whereas the examples that James then gives are of a farmer whose patience is a very active thing. Like you can't just be a farmer and just sit there and hope that something's going to happen. You have to go out and prepare the field. You have to plant the seeds. You have to weed. You have to, like, it's a very active patience, but you can't control the rain. You can't control the seasons, but you have to do all of your stuff in order for the harvest to actually come. Um, He also gives the example of the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. They were not passive people, but that's an example of endurance. They spoke out on behalf of the poor, on behalf of, or against injustice, um, against disobedience to God. So that's also part of what Christian endurance looks like. And then he also gives the example of Job, who had a big fight with God for 20-odd chapters, and yet did not curse God. And so Christian endurance, while we're waiting for the coming of the Lord, means we can wrestle with God. It means we may be called to speak out against injustice. It may mean that we need to do a whole lot of gardening, whether in literal or metaphorical. But there's a lot that is to be done to prepare. I, mean, I guess you could say this would be part of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We participate in the on earth part in this time and living according to the kingdom while we're waiting for the Lord's return, while we're waiting for it all to be made right. It's not right. Creation groans. We all sense it. But while we're waiting, we work on behalf of the kingdom, enduring through the hard times and yeah, not giving up. I guess you could say patience in James is the not giving up, but we trust that the Lord is coming and is going to make it right. And so we live into the kingdom rather than just looking at now. How does that transition in James 5 then from, from this patience and suffering, which is an act of patience, like you said, mm-hmm. there's a lot of work being done as mm-hmm. you patiently wait for, if we could tie it back before to the things that are above our pay grade. Mm-hmm. We're patiently waiting right. for God to be God. We're not making accusations of him, but, but yet wrestling with him and being patient and considering what's going on around us. How does that then relate to the next passage where we're talking about this prayer of faith? Elijah, verse 17 in chapter five says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And then for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Mm-hmm. Then he prayed and the rain and the heaven gave rain or fruit. You've got, the, the, there's an active thing in there, but there's also like a activation almost mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we know the story of, of Elijah where he was commissioned to you know, basically prophesy a drought right. and that right. God was doing some things in the hearts of those people during those years. And then there was a point where he prayed and the rains came Right. in the timing of God as the big P prophet. Right. He is a proper prophet. He's a proper prophet. <laughs> That's, That's right. Um, 
how do you tie those things together where there's like, there's this massive prayer of faith that actually does shift the climate of a nation in this Mm -hmm. way that it's the example Mm -hmm. being given yet at the same time, we're called to patiently endure. Right. Um, well, partly in some ways, uh, I mean, he's an example of the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, if you will, go back to literally tying those passages together. Um, what he does when he does that prayer is activate the covenant, um, curses from Deuteronomy, because that is one of the curses that the, the sky will not give forth rain. If you walk away from me, if you start worshiping other gods. So what he is doing on God's command is saying, okay, this is this is where we are. We're in a time of judgment, and three and a half years is a is a time of judgment. It's half of seven. Seven is good. Three and a half, not so good. <laughs> just just if you have three and a half year old kids, then you know that. Very <laughs> oh, that's well. great. <laughs> what about a fourteen year old? I have a fourteen year old. Doubly perfect. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. I, don't know. Well, well, I can't wait till my first kid is seven. <laughs> time. time, time we go. Yeah, no, Get out of the. All yeah, yeah. We push three through seven. I'm not sure that that plays out, but biblically speaking, but biblically speaking, yeah, it's a good is, number. Seven is fullness, good. Perfection. Three Three and, and a half, half is judgment. judgment time. So it's it's a kind of, I mean, it may have been three and a half literal years, but it's also a statement of judgment. Um, so in one sense, he's doing that. But I think it actually, that example of Elijah ties to the bigger theme of the book that I mentioned of being whole, single-minded. Um, because what he does in First Kings 17 and 18 is when he gets to that moment on Uh, Mount Carmel, his prayer is, Lord, turn their hearts back to you, that they will stop worshiping both Baal and Yahweh, stop worshiping the gods of the land. Baal is a nature god that will help you control the harvest, control your world, control all the things that will help your world go right. And God is this uh, unknowable, as it were. He's this great, vast, much bigger than we can control God. And what Elijah's trying to do is turn the people of Israel back from their double-mindedness to single-minded worship of God. Um, and so I think the example of Elijah actually is serving to tie the book together. And that's why Elijah then leads into that conclusion of pulling back those who wander from the faith. Just as Elijah pulled all of Israel back from double-mindedness by calling on God to enact one of the covenant curses, um, in the same way, we may be called, I don't know that we, I mean, we're not Israel, so we're not living in the same covenant of God, so I don't think we get to enact covenant curses the same way, but we are called to be actively pursuing those who walk away, actively pursuing those who are in love with the world and in love with God. Well, not so sure they're in love with God because they are in love with the world and helping them see how to worship God more fully. Um, And what's fun with the example of Elijah Fun, fun, fun. Fun if you're like a Bible scholar. <laughs> fun yeah. for a Bible nerd. Fun, fun, fun for Miriam and Brett. Sort of fun for Jake. Oh, sort of fun. On. There you go. But in the, the, what's fascinating, because in this whole passage, he hasn't been talking about prayer for rain in, in the lead up to that. He's talking about healing. He's talked about all these other things. And in chapters 17 and 18 of 1 Kings, Elijah heals a dead boy. So if you want a prayer of faith, bringing back someone from the dead, there you go. Um, and you also have Elijah harboring with a widow and providing them with food for that three years. Um, So you see him, you know, he's not living it comfortably somewhere off. He's living with a widow who genuinely has enough food for that day, every day for the next, you know, period of time until the rains return. Um, So you see him kind of actively caring for someone who would have been on the very margins of society in that time. And God actually leads him to harbor with her, uh, and then, yeah, the care for that. But then the whole point being, stop being so double-minded, Israel. <laughs> and I think we could hear that call now, especially in the West. We are culpably double-minded because we're comfortable. Because we can't, again, because we can control. Because we can, um, this being in love with the economy working so well for our benefit is a symptom of double-mindedness, uh, unfortunately. And I'm sure you could come up with more. Yeah, to the point where, you know, talked about this, and I know Jake and I both spoke about this in our, we still calling them sermons when we're just talking to a camera and putting it on YouTube? <laughs> I guess so, man. It's the structure of a just sermon. All, just, let's just all pause and <laughs> pause and long for the day when we can speak in a room full of people again. And, and I'm preaching for like three hours. What, the first Sunday the back? The first Sunday back, I'm just going to preach You're for just three gonna, hours. Just, I been, you It's all. been all pent up so much. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cry for 20 minutes and then I'll preach yeah, for the next yeah. 20. But I'll just be so thankful to start gathering with, with God's people again. But, I know. But there, you know, we both use the same illustration, I know, coming out of um, what was broadcast on national news in the States mm-hmm. last week of a, and a governor of Texas saying, 
you know, there's some older people here who we'd be willing to, to sacrifice ourselves, basically, because mm-hmm. he says, hey, the young people aren't getting sick from this, which is entirely not which true. Which is not true. Yeah, so it's don't. Just, it's yeah. just scientifically <laughs> wrong and, and objectively not a true fact. But he's saying it's it's really affecting the older people, which it is affecting older people mm-hmm. by greater measure. But it's not as though the, you know those under forty five or something are impervious to this. Yeah. But but he's saying, hey, us us who are over seventy, like we'd be willing to take the risk just so we can keep the economy going. And right. and if we can keep the economy going, then everything's going to be okay. Right. The problem is, is that sounds like a lot of preaching. Like yeah. there's people who are Christians who are advocating for that type of approach right. where we got to keep the economy going and God and country kind of stuff. It doesn't work like that. Mm. And I think that is the double mindedness. Mm-hmm. Like it's mm. what if we lose, you know, I, I said this on Sunday, what if we lose everything? Right. And, and I, I think, and having that eternal mindset governing what we do and how we respond, if we're in Christ, we can't. Mm-hmm. We just can't lose everything. But I know the dominant narrative in the news, the dominant narrative, I, I would say my confession before I preached that sermon was a week of wrestling over that in my, in my mm-hmm. own heart. Mm-hmm. It, honestly, what, what if we do lose everything? Mm-hmm. And, and then coming back to the place time and time again, sometimes not every day, but every hour of the day for a couple mm-hmm. days where I felt this overwhelming sense of sadness over what if we do lose things mm-hmm. that are going on, good things in our lives, and what if we mm-hmm. can't keep doing ministry the same way we've been doing it, or what if our finances are affected in this way because they are, and mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff rolling out, it's double-minded. I, I feel as though when I'm in that, moment, in that moment, that that anxiety, which is a divided mind, I feel pulled mm-hmm. in two opposite directions, and the worry and anxiety is like, it can overwhelm. I, this speaks a lot of hope to me out of the letter that James wrote. And and Miriam, I, you know, you were just talking about Elijah and and Baal worship and and worship of Yahweh and how they're you know not single minded in their in their worship. And and I said this this past weekend too. I mean, we consider ourselves a progressive people. Mm-hmm. We progress beyond you know like binary you know idol worship, but like sacrificing people to save the economy. Is, is, is the li- ultimate idolatry right there. That is the ultimate example of idolatry. Right, right. And so I just, it, to me, it was just so astonishing. And again, as Brett said, I say that like outwardly as a, you know, that's wrong, but also inwardly, mm-hmm. like I feel that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just a very felt thing internally as well. Well, and I wonder, you know, no, we, we can't lose God's hold on us. Like God holds us in his hands. We are secure. We are safe. But sometimes that does feel very abstract and theoretical when you're looking at, you know, the business I built up is disappearing. My, you know, savings account is getting wiped out and there's no income. And, you know, these different things can feel very, very frightening, rightly so. And I I do wonder if that's where we need to now step up as the church and say, yes, this is frightening. How can we help? You know, what does it look like going forward as the church that we are the people that maybe we weren't out there visiting all the sick and getting it spread everywhere, but we were the people that when the business went under, we made sure that they didn't become homeless. Or we were the people who, when this, you know, as James Deuce says, when they didn't have food and they didn't have clothes, we made sure they did. Um, You know, we make sure people have shelter. We make sure. And then when this is whatever it means when this is all over, I don't know what that's going to look like. (laughs) The future is very unknown at this point. But how are we going to be the people that are there supporting people who have lost all their dreams and all their, you know, savings and all these different things? I think that's where the church really can make a pretty pronounced different statement in this time. Um, So some of us may lose all the physical things. And so how do we support each other? How do we care in that way? our, Our hope thinking about it today out of Hebrews 6, just that have a steadfast hope, mm-hmm. but an anchor for our souls. Mm-hmm. And in turbulent times of trial, mm-hmm. it's so nice to know that I'm anchored to one who is immovable. And so Amen. I'm on the surface in the ship that is getting tossed to and fro in the waves of the sea and the angry storm going on all around us makes me feel very unsettled. And mm-hmm. it's almost though you're sitting in a boat in the 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 planks of the boat are shattering underneath us and water starts to pour in. And I go, yeah, but I'm still anchored. Mm-hmm. I'm still anchored. Yep. And I don't really, again, you know, Jake and I've had this conversation even about Christ city. Like we've had a few challenges over the last six months or so. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jake said something to me one day that pierced my heart because it was true and I didn't want to admit it. <laughs> you know, we, we went through a process of trying to buy a building, right? which we're very thankful right now that we're not trying to fundraise for a building. 
because it would okay. seem very uh, impractical to be fundraising to, <laughs> to buy a very, very expensive building on the west side of Vancouver for our, one of our congregations to move into. And Jake looked at me one day and said, we're not used to things not going well here, mm. meaning with mm-hmm. our church. You know, we're six and a half years in as a church. We started pre-launch stuff like seven years ago right now. So we're a young church in lots of ways, but we're in continuity with 2,000 years of the church. Mm -hmm. But here we are as a unique congregation, a a local expression of the church, and we're quite used to things going well. And I would say, by and large, most of our generation have not had, I mean, most. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's people who are, are, are the exception to this. We're pretty used to things going well. Mm-hmm. Like if you come from a decent home, you have some sort of access to education, you live in Canada, your basic needs are met, you get a good education, you're probably going to get a decent job. If you're going to work hard and you're going to apply yourself to it, things will go reasonably well for you, at least comparatively on a global perspective. You're, you're going to do well. You know, the, the Occupy Wall Street movement just screaming about the 1%. Like globally, we are the 1%. Right, every right. single one of us who live in this city, you know, I mean, every single one of us, but almost, almost everyone us, who lives yeah. in this city, most people who live in this city are the 1%. And you kind of look at it in that way and go, hey, you know what? Because of uh, the geography of our birth, and, and, and mm-hmm. which we think is under God's providential care and sovereignty, but we've arrived at this place in our lives, not because we're awesome but because he's generous and kind and he's led us to this point. And we're not used to suffering. We're not used to trials. And if I'm going to be really, really honest, which I I try to be, I'm not used (laughs) to things not going well. Right. Like I'm used to saying, here's the vision. Here's the strategy on how we're going to execute the vision. And then give me a few months and here's the delivered product. Right. That, That has been seven years of our church. And then we had one thing happen in December where that all fell apart. And it was like, I realized I'm not in control. Mm -hmm. Okay, that goes on. We've had a couple other challenges in the meantime. And then all of a sudden this happens. And guess what? You can't gather next week. Right. And I go, what if everything falls apart? Yeah. You know, oh, it, like it just got real. And so maybe for the first time in, in some of our lives, we're facing the reality Mm-hmm. that everything we've built and the, the the 25-year plan that we have from now till the end of our working lives and then how we want our 25 years of retirement to look right. that brings us to the age that. 90 and because that's just kind of how we think about things. You, you, you have that going on in your minds. You know, what if that doesn't happen? Right. I had a, an experience reading a book the other day where the author talked about, um, he's, it's just one of these soul care, real, real heart-level books. And the author is talking about how you might, and he's speaking hypothetically, you, you might uh, be a person uh, that is so driven by fear that you, you chronically overachieve. And mm. so as to never let that thing that is most afraid come true. <laughs> and so yeah, maybe, can we, can we get the book title maybe later? <laughs> Anyways, keep going. And, and so. None, um, none of us have that problem here though. I mean, that's. But, but I, I was just exposed because in this season, like there's nothing, like I can create only so much content. I can only make so many phone calls. And, and, and all this fear is being exposed in me of like, what if I'm a failure? Mm-hmm. And, and then how does the gospel intersect with that thought? Yeah. And how does our Heavenly Father, who is uh, three in one, who is moving towards us in love, intersect uh, w- w- with that thought? Um, well, that's, I mean, I would take you back to James 4, if you will, there. Um, and the, the, the caution that we're an adulterous people because we are in love with the world. We are in love with our own control. We are in love with our own systems. And yet we claim to be God's people. And that, that, that double-mindedness, we're adulteresses. He's using the old prophetic language there. Um, and the response we may need is a time of lament, is a time of mourning, that as the church, we have become compromised. Um, we may need to spend some time weeping over the fact that I like control. Thank you very much. I like overachieving because then I look good. Thank you very much. I like, you know, these things that make me feel better are not actually necessarily directed at God. They, they are in name. I'm doing good biblical work because I teach Bible stuff. Um, but it may actually be in a sense, my own insecurities coming out exactly what you're saying. And I need to repent from that and actually grieve and mourn and well for that double-mindedness because we know, as he ends there, humble yourself in 410 before the Lord, and he will lift you up. He doesn't just say, okay, now mourn, feel really guilty, wallow. It's actually throw yourself on God and let him lift you up. Let him, you know, tell you what you should be doing. Let him build you into the person he wants to build you into. Because ultimately, all of that is the gift of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Because all of that is actually going to anchor us to the right hope. Right. All of that is going to cause us to be the right kind of people who know what to do in season. I think about, you know, said of the tribe of Issachar that they signs and times and knew what Israel should do. But, you know, as we try and take that and apply it, like if mm-hmm. we're wisdom people, we're going to go through what we go through and it's going to produce a kind of fruit in our lives where we then know how to respond, but not how to respond so we look good, not how to respond so we're in control, not how to respond so that we can overcome our fear by just managing everything, not overachieving as a way of justifying yourself or something like that, but actually so that you can be the kind of people that God wants us to be so mm-hmm. that we can shine light in the world. Because there's a lot of broken people. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I'd get out of bed in this season, honestly, without knowing that Jesus is, is for me, that, that, that God the Father sent God the Son and filled me with God the Spirit so that I would be formed into the kind of person who would glorify him and be light in the world. Because there's a lot of beautiful things happening, but I don't know how I'd do that if I was apart from Christ. Mm-hmm. It's, it's wild to me. Miriam, I, I think we would be remiss not to ask this question because we're in the book of James and we're talking about sickness. Uh, there's a virus. And so at the <laughs> end of chapter virus. five, uh, it talks a little bit about that. Uh, <laughs> in this season, not only does it expose our idolatry, it also exposes our bad theology. Uh, which is maybe connected to our idolatry. <laughs> Those and, two tend to go together right. quite, quite nicely. And so I've been seeing things where people have said, well, you just need to declare healing over yes. the situation. And James 5 says, uh, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. And so th- there's one reading of that passage where it's, if you just have enough faith, yeah. you, you, you'll be healed. Yep. T- tell me. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> First off, I'm always struck by the definition of faith because it suddenly makes faith a work that we do. I have to have enough faith. And if you don't have enough faith, you won't get well. So have more faith. And it's like, wait, 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 wait. faith is a gift from God, isn't it? So now I have to somehow generate more faith and God is punishing me for not having enough faith. Like it just, it's a bad cyclical Bad, bad definition of faith. Um, So again, in James, or I don't know if again, but um, in James, faith is who do you have faith in? So our faith is directed in God, or is it in our own, the amount of faith I have? Um, So the, the reading that if you have enough faith, God will heal you is not the right direction. It's actually, if you have faith in God, you know that he has you secure. So back to the sermons on Sunday, you can't actually lose everything because your faith is in the God who is unchangingly good and has you secure. Um, So that's who we're praying to. So the prayer of faith is praying in faith to that God, not the prayer of how awesome my faith is. Now heal me, Lord. Um, So we're praying in faith to that God. And then it's an interesting use of the word raise in that verse um, because it's actually the word for resurrection as well. So it's an ambiguous word because it can be just genuinely heal now or it can be resurrect in the future. Um, So it's one of those words that kind of means both and so you always have to contextually translate it except here it could mean both <laughs> so it could mean like a revivication from somebody who is dead like the elijah, like the elijah example yeah, yeah. or it can mean or it can mean the resurrection new in life. the future new life so god will raise you up but it may not be right here right now the way we want but we know that he will raise us up um but he may raise you up now so we pray in faith that he is the healer god who could raise you up now but we pray in faith knowing that even if you don't, he will raise you up. And so there's that, that ambiguity in this text is there of when the time frame isn't clear, maybe you could say. Um, is there a different conception of the time frame in, in the people that this letter is originally written to compared to the way that we conceive of time in 2020? Uh, probably. I mean, just in the ancient world, death is more common than it is now again. We're very insulated from it. And they were, like with the plague, with all these different things, you are aware, I guess maybe because death is more common, you are kind of keeping an eschatological eye all the time. And that that future into the present is much more fluid than it is now. Now we we want our life to be as long as it possibly can be because we like it. It's comfortable. (laughs) We want it to keep going. Whereas I think they were a little more fluid on the future of the kingdom and the present now. Is that a little bit what you were asking about? Yeah, I just I, I just wonder at times when we because we think we think immediacy mm-hmm. in our generation of time and we think like you know unequivocated sort of moment by moment mm-hmm. and we think very linear 
mm-hmm. in the in the way that we conceive of our lives. And so everything is very linear. I'm going to set this goal and then this goal and then mm-hmm. this thing, and I'm going to achieve this and this and this. Whereas life was not so neat and tidy, perhaps right. in the ancient Near Eastern world where this is written into. Right, right, right. Right, and and yeah, like you said, death is so removed from our view. Right. Death is still uh, ever present, and the last victory to be, or the the last enemy to be defeated will be death. We see First Corinthians fifteen, but you just don't have a view of it as much. Mm-hmm. It's not constantly in our face. Like people aren't, um, uh, you know, the aged people in our lives are not dying at home right. with us in right. our family household. They're dying at a care center or a hospital in palliative care, and it's sanitized. Right. So I just I, I've always wondered in, in that way of how much. Yeah, how much of our reading of this is so driven by our view of how things work out in moment by moment by right. moment time? Well, yeah, if if it says the Lord will raise them up, then we assume right now, right here, I've prayed, I expect healing right now. Whereas it may be, um, so the example I often give is my father was ill for 20 odd years. Um, and there were points where God very much acted to save him. But he was never quite as healthy as, you know, but he could have died when I was six, but he didn't. You know, like there were moments where I think God did act to stop the progress of the disease or just, you know, have a doctor do something right at that moment. That was an answer to prayer. He was anointed by elders and it was, you know, like, but it wasn't maybe the answer we want. I want him 100% well again. That wasn't what we were given, but we were given... Yet you have confidence that he will raise and, him up. And I do have confidence now that God will raise him up. Yeah. That is, you know, he was saved at that point in time, and then he will be fully resurrected. The other thing I'd want to note from that that's also a bad theology that comes out of this passage, James has a lot of nice lines for bad theology, <laughs> is that it goes right into, if they've sinned, they'll be forgiven, right. therefore confess your sin. So often people are looking for what is the sin that you did. And and I think the, the flow of the passage is vital, because first they're sick, and then he adds, and if they sinned. And so it's not an assumption that they did sin. It's a, an acknowledgement, as it were, you know, David talks about it in the Psalms, my sin eats away at me. Um, you know, there are sins that lead to sickness. And if you sinned, then you need to confess and God can heal you from that. But, and, and what that healing looks like maybe. But not as transactional as maybe some not people would today. Right. Right. We don't get to, well, find a sin in your life and confess it, even if you don't know what it is. Like, right. Or, you know, you don't get to sit and look at someone and be like, I think this is the sin God, you know, right. doing so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Miriam, I really appreciate you taking the time to come and just walk through James uh, with us. Yeah. Uh, if there was um, maybe a, a parting word for us as a church, speaking mm-hmm. uh, to the men and women listening to this in their cars, at home, Maybe in isolation, or maybe mm-hmm. with a bunch of screaming kids running everywhere. <laughs> Desire for isolation. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Not isolated enough. <laughs> no. What would be no. an encouraging word uh, that you think uh, maybe even James would speak to us uh, in this time? I think I would want to call people to remember to focus on who God is. And James very much, um, God is good. He's generous. He's the good giver of good things. The primary good thing he gave us is our salvation, but that's not the only good thing he's given us. Every good and perfect gift is from the Father, who is unchangingly good and good. And I think when we're in times of anxiety, when we're in times of uncertainty, remembering God's character can help us kind of snap out of our frantic, uh, yeah, frantic anxiety. I'm waving my hands wildly because I don't know the word I want for that, but but that sense of uh, franticness. when we instead look to God, it talks about a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And the, the call to peace, um, again, back to any of the Beatitudes if you want to go to, um, is the fruit of resting in God's character and resting in God's goodness. And so, no, the future is not certain. No, we don't have control the way we thought we did. No, there's a lot that's unknown now. But who is God? Who is our God? Can we rest in that? Can we trust him to be good? and then live out of that confidence. 
That's so helpful and uh, so gracious of you to, to say and encourage us with as a parting word. I'm thankful for you and your ministry you. and uh, your friendship. And uh, yeah, I just hope that this serves our church really, really well. Thanks, hope Jake, so. for uh, guiding us through this conversation today again. And uh, to you who are listening, if you have questions that you want to respond with or uh, you have some topics that you want us to talk about on this podcast, you can just email us at info at christcitychurch.ca. We'd be very happy to attack those as best as we have the ability to do. Trust that you're well and hope you're well and pray you're well and are thankful for your time. Amen. Here Be Dragons is a podcast of Christ City Church in Vancouver. You can find us online at herebedragonspodcast.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Dragon Podcast.